welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today we interview Amy Fan, co-founder and chief product officer of 28 Health. 28 Health is a birth control startup that is working to simplify the process to receive reproductive and sexual health services. They provide online doctor evaluations for birth control prescriptions, quick home deliveries, and secure messaging with doctors. They also have sex ed content vetted by doctors so women can learn about all their options. They target patients from low-income backgrounds who lack access to transportation or being able to step away from their obligations, such as school, work, or caregiving. These are all reasons that someone may miss their appointment, and that's who 28 Health is serving most. Amy is offering our listeners a free doctor evaluation for birth control, which is a $20 value. Use promo code FOCUS at 28health.com to sign up. Enjoy the interview. Hey, Amy, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thank you so much for having me here today. Yes, definitely. I think we've been trying to get you on for a while. Yeah, it's uh it's been a it's been a crazy time in my personal life where I've actually moved from California to New York. So with that move I had to reschedule this. Oof, wow, that's quite the drive. Did you like U haul all your belongings cross country? I actually flew um, and shipped most of my belongings. Shipped it, yeah. Man, crazy, crazy. Well, um, where's your company originally based in California? No, we are originally based in New York. Um, I normally actually live in Brooklyn in New York, but at the beginning of the health pandemic, I was actually out in California for work. Oh. Uh, was supposed to do some international travel as well. Decided to stay in California given everything that's happening yep. and probably like most people. So I was going to blow over in a couple of weeks. And <laughs> so. You're like, Oh, um, it'll just be a long weekend. <laughs> and all yeah, of a sudden it's yeah. June. <laughs> Four months later, came back from California to New York. <laughs> oh my gosh. Crazy. Yeah. This is, this is definitely insane. Well, I'm very excited to have you on the show today and uh, to talk about 28 health. I have so many questions for you, but our listeners love to hear about our guests background because we don't usually, you know, say in elementary school that I want to grow up and be a founder in femtech, right? We somehow end up here. So what did you study? What did you do? Where are you from? And how did you end up here? Sure. Um, so my family's originally from Taiwan and I actually grew up in Canada um, I started off my career after undergrad in business, working as a consultant at Bain. And afterwards, I joined a venture studio. Um, at the venture studio, the first product I built was actually a telemedicine platform for dietitians. Okay. Um, and the really interesting learning I got there was that convenience alone was not enough to overcome barriers, especially with affordability. Hmm. Um, most recently, I switched gears a little bit and ended up being the general manager of a direct-to-consumer skincare startup. Um, 
what I really loved about working in beauty is how consumer centric everything is, Mm -hmm. whether it's the product formulation, packaging, the unboxing experience, everything is created in service of the user. And that felt very different than the healthcare experience I had living in the U.S., Even with insurance, I found it extremely difficult to find both a primary care physician and an OBGYN. Oh my God, so hard. I have a PhD in genetics. Like I'm probably an above (laughs) average intelligent woman. And I like have to make so many phone calls when I have co-pays and I don't understand it. Like I have, I've had to get my own insurance as a founder. It is so hard. And I'm always like, I'm very smart. (laughs) Like, and I can't do this. So I can't, can't understand how they expect everyone to be able to do this. Definitely. It's, it's just a very opaque system where there's a lot of things that's really hard for an individual Mm -hmm. user who is even well-versed in healthcare jargon to be able to understand it. Um, so after that, I actually went back to school, uh, did an MBA as well as master's public health at UC Berkeley, because I really wanted to think about how do we take this human centric approach that's so common in beauty Mm. and apply it to women's health. Mm. Oh, I love it. I love it because I don't know, maybe you're going to get into this, but something we've noticed, you know, you're our 52nd uh, interviewee, right? So we we have all these data, all this story. And what we're realizing is that femtech companies are the most successful when they are very personal with their consumer, the woman consumer, when they're like their friend, you know, they're like, Hey, listen, you got it. I know you got to trust me for you to buy this from me. And so I'm going to be real open and honest and authentic and this very approachable brand. Is that what you've noticed as well? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I think particularly reproductive health, women don't want to be treated as if they truly are patient. They don't want to be Mm -hmm. in a sterile environment where they feel like, Oh, I have some sort of sickness or illness, particularly for us where we deal with birth control and being able to give birth and wanting to family plan is not a sickness. Um, so I think really adopting a different lens to it is really important oh, about how you actually visualize the experience. Yes. Yes. I've never thought about that for like birth control and fertility that it is about connecting with the female consumer, but it's also about like, you're not sick, you're not defective. Like this is just yeah. something, you know, a thing. So interesting. Very interesting. Sorry, I derailed you. So keep going. So you you <gasps> went to school, Berkeley, MBA, master's in public health. Then what happened? Um, so during that time, I very serendipitously got connected to my co-founder. Um, and my co-founder also brings a really interesting background. Um, so his name is Bruno, which I think it's another piece that is interesting for a lot of folks where there's not that many men in femtech. And I actually think it's something that's really important to make sure that people understand women's health is healthcare for everyone. It shouldn't only be women that care. Yes. This is what I say. My listeners are like, Oh my God, Brittany's loving this. (laughs) (laughs) This That's what I say every week. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So meeting Bruno, I think, it was so great to get his insights, particularly from his time at the Gates Foundation. Mm. Um, so his background is he worked as a consultant at BCG for many years, focused on healthcare, mm. and also led market access and family planning, HIV and malaria at the Gates Foundation. Uh, so he actually saw uh, telemedicine models related to reproductive and sexual health in a lot of developing markets um, and how it was able to overcome stigma that's unfortunately common worldwide, mm-hmm. uh, issues around costs as well as accessibility. Um, and he was really interested in exploring how do we take those learnings and apply in the U.S. And I think for us, it was kind of the perfect merge of being able to do something consumer centric that we were both really passionate about. Uh, and that's how we got to 28. 
Oh my goodness. So when, when was 28 health founded? How long ago? So, uh, I met my co-founder in December of 2017, um, started working on the idea then before we launched, we interviewed over 200 women. And since then we've probably surveyed three or 4,000 women being user centric is something that we are very passionate about. Um, and officially launched 20 in December of 2018. 2018. So you're like a year and a half. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And, uh, what is, what do you, Oh, you know what? As I'm about to ask this question, I think my brain just answered it. But why is your company's name 28? <laughs> uh, it's because it's the average number of days in a menstrual cycle. Oh, my God. I know it now. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, that's such a weird thing. Like, why did she name it 28? And then as I was going to ask, I was like, oh, my God, I, you know exactly why it's called 28. Anyways, cool. It's like a conversation starter, you know? Like, yes. I would say the... <laughs> majority of people um men or women ask us that so yeah yeah no it makes no it, it's a great <laughs> name it's a great name so you know you launch um december 2018 how many well tell us about your product so it's um, yeah. birth control delivery tell us about what it is that you do yeah so our vision for 28 health is to be the first digital health platform built to be inclusive of underserved communities. Mm. So we provide telemedicine, medication delivery, as well as ongoing care through messaging with doctors. Um, We started in birth control and we're expanding to other areas of women's health to support women as they go through different life stages, whether that's SDI treatments, pre and postnatal services and products, all the way out to pre and postmenopause and our future plan. Um, The reason why we think being inclusive of the underserved community is so important because Affordability is a really big factor. Mm-hmm. So we are the only player in the five states that uh, we're active in to accept Medicaid. In addition to that, we also partner with Bedsider to cover the cost of birth control for uninsured women who are not able to afford it. Wow, that's really, really important. So how does your company stay afloat if you're you know, targeting people that can't pay for it? Yeah, I mean, I think a really big part is understanding the healthcare system. Mm. Um, and this is something that one of my professors hammered into me while in school. It's really mm. understanding the flow of funds and the flow of value in oh. healthcare. Um, and healthcare is a really interesting beast where it, it doesn't go the same direction necessarily. Hmm. So, for example, thinking about uh, insurance, where the flow of funds really comes from the insurance company to pay the provider, to pay for the medication. Um, and then you have all the other players that get in there, like biopharma companies, PBMs, et cetera. Uh, but in terms of the flow of benefits, it's really from the doctor to the patient and then the medication to the patient. Um, so I think having an understanding of that really allows us to think about how do we leverage the Medicaid program that's already in place that is meant to help these women and make yeah. it easier for them to get care that's already covered. But right now, it's just so hard for them to navigate it in the first place. This is amazing because, you know, um, sometimes in femtech we hear, well, you know, that's, that's already, that problem's already been solved by that one femtech company. And, you know, I do believe that we need to not just continue to recreate the same wheel, right? So I don't think we need any more organic tampon companies, right? (laughs) But um, what I will say is that, uh, you know, how many, um, like, 
discount furniture stores are there. I don't know, right? Like if you just pick something, there's like lots of competitors and competitors are important. So I feel like the excuse in femtech of like, well, someone's already solving that. That's that's not a good excuse. We deserve to have different people working on it. But the key, mm-hmm. I think, is that each one can have their own angle. They can target different cultures or different ages of women or different regions of women. And so, you know, I get my birth control delivered from NERCs, which we haven't had on the show yet. If you're out, if you're listening, I want you on the show. But I have my birth control from them. We've interviewed Dr. Sophia Yen, um, you know, and then now we have you. And I looked at your website and I was like, oh, my gosh, their unique angle is this, like, how can we tap into medic? Medicaid and um, is it Medicaid or Medicare you tap into? Medicaid. Medicaid, yep. Okay. Um, you know, and like you're targeting a different subset of like women that need this. Definitely. Right. And I think what's really interesting is that uh, birth control is a good starting point actually for a lot of companies because if you think about just the history of birth control, where the majority of birth control brands have been around for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So from a safety perspective, um, it's less risky. Yeah. And then also from a prescription perspective, telemedicine, while it's advanced a lot, particularly during the health pandemic, mm-hmm. which I would say is a silver lining of it, yeah. um, the regulations are still really far behind. Mm-hmm. So with something like birth control, it's actually a, a really good initial test market for a lot of companies to start with. Um, but the other piece, I think exactly to your point is that we also shouldn't limit choice. The, mm-hmm. the whole idea is that to give women more options across yes. the board. Yes, give us options. Journey. Give us options. Yes. <laughs> How many um, prescriptions have run through your organization? Oh, that is a good question. Uh, in the sense that I, the, the way we think about it is typically number of users, which I'm oh, probably pretty okay. analogous to number of prescriptions, um, other than the users that, of course, have stayed with us for over a year and the prescriptions um, you have to rewrite every Renew, year. Yeah. Um, that, unfortunately, is a number we don't share publicly. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> too cheesy for me. Oh, my God. You brought me all the way to the end. <laughs> no worries. No worries. I've been a founder. I totally get it. Well, um, what I what I am curious about is that you said you're in five states. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's part of that regulatory issue, right? Like you can't, yeah. you're not launched in the US. You're launched in five states. Do you have plans to launch in other states? Yep. So our goal is to be in 35 states by the end of next year. So we have a very optimistic plan to continue growth. Um, and What's interesting about healthcare, exactly like you mentioned, a lot of it is regulated on a state level. So whether that's telemedicine regulations, physician licensing, as well as Medicaid is all regulated at state level. Um, So while we have a lot of learnings that will allow us to replicate it very quickly in each state, there are certain nuances to each state as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Um, What are the five states you're in right now? We're in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Florida. Cool. Great, great, great. Yeah. Um, how much, cause I saw on your website, you do very, very transparently say like, here's how much it costs. So why don't you tell our listeners how much it costs to get birth control from your platform? Sure. So, um, there's three different types of methods that people can be covered. So one is, uh, paying out of pocket if you don't have insurance. So birth control packs start at $16 per pack. Um, with that. And then what we also want to do is provide a lot of transparency when it comes to brands, because there's over a hundred different FDA approved brands 
um, available in the U.S. and the manufacturers actually price it differently as well. Uh, so what we want to do is bring down the cost as low as possible, show people that for this brand, it's the cost. Also show them what an equivalent is. Mm -hmm. um, so then they can decide for themselves when they're having the conversation with the doctor uh, what brands they might prefer. And the doctor will also make suggestions for them too. Mm -hmm. um, and we also accept commercial insurance as well as Medicaid. And the majority of the time is $0 copay. So people are getting their medication, delivery, and wow. ongoing messaging with the doctor for free. Um, wow. And the last way I mentioned earlier is with Bedsider. So for people who are uninsured and are, are unable to pay, we partner with Bedsider uh, to be able to cover the cost of birth control for an entire year. What, what is Bedsider? Because I know you have a partnership with them and National Institute for Reproductive Health. So what do they do and what does your partnership look like? Yeah, Bedsider is an amazing national organization really focused on increasing particularly education and medically active resources for reproductive sexual health. Um, so they have a really easy to navigate website that uh, is really popular, particularly amongst uh, late teens as well as people in their early 20s, to just get transparent, accessible, approachable information. Uh, this is actually something that's really important where only 17 states actually mandate sexual education to be medically accurate. Oh um, I don't want to think about what's not in the rest of the other states, uh, but also why we need resources that are medically accurate online. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's always just like, pause. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, we have, that's I not know. even half of the states, y'all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so Bedsider helps with the information is what I'm getting. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. And so in terms of our partnership with these organizations, so we donate 2% of our revenues, 1% uh, to Bedside there and the other 1% to the National Institute oh for Reproductive gosh, Health. That's amazing. Yeah, because our vision when it comes to birth control is that it should be free. It should be free and accessible for everyone across the US. And while we're not able to do that yet today, um, we're going to support these great national organizations that are continuing to advance access so that we're building the foundations mm -hmm. Why do you think birth control should be free? I have my own opinion, but I want to hear your argument. One piece is that there are a lot of different ways to get coverage for it today, whether it's through insurance, uh, and that's both commercial insurance and Medicaid. And to me, uh, not to bring politics on. Oh, your bring show, it on. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just a really important part of empowering an individual to live mm -hmm. the lifestyle that they want to. Yeah. And it's really not just women, um, regardless of your uh, one piece to think about. She's like, regardless of your gender identification, birth control can be something that is important. And birth control goes beyond just birth control pills, uh, it also includes condoms. So it, it really takes people from all sides to understand. Um, what is needed for them to be uh, sexually active in a safe way. Mm -hmm. Do you know if there's other countries that offer free birth control? Um, so a lot of countries with universal health care, uh, mm -hmm. for example, Canada, not to do a plug for Canada, yeah. <laughs> but, um, are places where uh, birth control is generally a lot more accessible. Uh, for example, with Canada, though, it's not all birth control options are covered equally. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another consideration where I think we'll, we'll to continue to advance it. So we'll start with free for everyone and then making sure various methods are available. Yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of accessibility, um, I saw some statistics on your website that said 
there are these things called contraceptive deserts and that 19.7 million women live in one. What, what is a contraceptive desert? Yeah, great question. So a contraceptive desert is an area where basically the CDC deems that there is not um, a clinic that has a full range of contraceptive options and a reasonable driving distance. And there are many counties that actually have zero of those clinics. Um, wow. And that's what creates these contraceptive deserts. Uh, another plug I'll make for Bedsider is that Bedsider, as well as their parent organization, Power to Decide, um, mm-hmm. are the ones that are doing this research and actually was the ones that came up um, with the statistic and also why it's important to support nonprofits doing mm-hmm. research work as well. Wow. So incredible. When did you come up with that like 2% donation thing? Like when you started the company, like, was that something like in your bones that was from the beginning or was that something that kind of evolved? Yeah, it's something that we started from the very beginning because for us, we always wanted to be a mission driven company. And even when we go out and talk to investors, we view our North star as we Mm. want to serve underserved populations because we know there are so many more barriers to them And even though there are probably more profitable ways to grow within the healthcare system, to us, it's not about that. It's really about how do we get people access who need it the most. And I think making that commitment really early on is also just a reaffirmation for ourselves about the mission. Oh my gosh, that is incredible, you know? And, you know, you're not a nonprofit yourself. You're a for-profit, right? And yeah. so listeners, if you want to start a company, um, even if it's doing good, doesn't mean you don't have to get rich off of it. You can do good and make money at the same time, you know, and you can do, you I mean, your 28 health is doing good on its own, but then you're doing extra good by donating <laughs> 2%. And so, you know, um, but I just always want our listeners to know, like, you don't have to be um, money hungry to have a, a for profit, you know? Um, you can do good and make money. So, and you're talking about like closing that gap of affordability and accessibility for reproductive and sexual health care besides your company, which is obviously doing amazing things and those nonprofits, like what are other ways do you think that we can close this gap? Yeah. Um, I would say one of the biggest pieces is really thinking about policy, mm. uh, particularly when it comes to healthcare policy, because it's regulated on a state level I would highly encourage people to get more involved, to get more uh, educated about state-level politics. I think federal-level politics tends to get a lot more fanfare. Um, But at the end of the day, it's typically the state-level ones that really impact this on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Register to vote, y'all. Register to vote and then do it and then actually vote. Do it. Okay? Yes. Um, (laughs) Please vote. Dear God, please vote. Um, you know, I noticed on your website, you actually had a whole page on sexual health. So I wanted to dive into that a little bit more. Was that something that was in the beginning of your company? Or is it something that you realize like, oh my gosh, like we need to be providing more info on sexual health? Um, where did that come from? Yeah, so um, it really stemmed from the initial interviews that we did. Mm. So one of the common questions that we had, particularly from Um, the younger women that we interviewed was, oh, like, well, if I take birth control pill, what happens if I skip it for one day? Or what happens if I take it two hours late? They had a lot of these questions where initially I felt like, oh, it must be very easy to do a Google search and find. And while there are a lot of results, I think the hard part is to really sift through the information to figure out 
what is accurate from a medical standpoint and what might be less so. Um, so we wanted to build a really simple part of our platform to be able to host this information. Yeah. Everything that we have on there is doctor vetted. The other piece we think about is readability. Um, so for the new content that we're creating, we actually use a tool to be able to assess a readability and try and get it down to a grade eight reading level because that is actually oh. the average reading level in the U.S. Um, to make it more accessible and define any medical terms that we're using. I did not know what you meant by readability. I was like, fun to read, like, <laughs> but short, <laughs> like good font, the font's big enough, but uh, oh, it's like comprehension, you know, of it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Because I yeah, mean, if so we're talking about accessibility, if people don't have accessibility to uh, healthcare, um, uh, insurance, a doctor, they may not have access to very higher education too, right? And yeah. so taking all that yeah. into account. Huh. Definitely. I also noticed on your website, you had some articles that were super freaking woke, which I love, which was like, you know, um, transgender um uh, I don't, I don't think it was rights, but it was like health, healthcare yeah. and treatments for transgender individuals. Do you please tell me more about that? Like, is that something like, did you interview anyone that was transgendered when you were doing this user centric thing? Did you interview anyone that said like, I don't want this to ever target transgendered people? Like, how do you balance that? Yeah. And to be honest, this was something I learned along the way. And mm -hmm. I think it was a good wake-up call for myself just to also remember the implicit biases that I may have. Um, and it was actually because of a user that came through. And as a part of the medical questionnaire, we asked about uh, someone's sex because from a medical perspective, it's important for the doctors to know um, what your sex is. Yes. And um, this individual had answered that he is male and when someone answers male on our platform, we let them know that uh, right now we don't offer birth control to men. Um, and then they wrote to us and explained more about their situation and that they're transgender male, but yes. uh, they haven't undergone the transgender surgery. So it's actually still applicable for them. Yep. And it really, yeah, and it, it made me realize um, the wording that we're using and how it could be so much more inclusive uh, so we've actually gone through our website to try and make it more inclusive. Uh, in addition, for the medical questionnaire, we have reworded it. So rather than asking about someone's gender or sex, we ask them about the sex they were assigned at birth. And we also provide explanations around specifically what that means. Yeah. Um, the other piece, the article that you mentioned, is specifically related to um, the when birth control applies to someone who is transgendered or non-binary. So we explain if you're a transgender male, at what point, um, could birth control be a good option? Mm. What types of birth control? And similarly, if you're a transgender woman, what are some of the considerations that you should have? Um, that being said, I think it's something that's still a learning process for us and we want to continue to improve on. So we welcome any feedback and yeah. that's, I mean, we're so appreciative of it because it's another way for us to learn. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I love that. You know, um, Back in the day, my biotech company was a DNA-based dating app, and there was so much debate, but it was healthy and important and good debate around mm -hmm. when we're onboarding someone into the app, like, what do, do we ask gender? Do we ask sex? Do we say, like, 
you know, and if you put all the options that are available in the world, all of a sudden you have this huge list you got to scroll through, you know, and it was like all of, it was just a huge, huge, huge dialogue. And so I think it's really important for all the companies to be having those conversations. And I love what you said, which is, Hey, I don't know everything. If you have a feeling about it, please reach out to us, you know, and Femtech Focus is definitely the same way where, you know, we're, we, I am very admittedly don't know everything, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, please, yeah. please tell me, <laughs> tell me what's up. What should I do or say? Um, yeah. One of the things that um, I'm just going to put you on the spot here. One of the things we've been thinking about is like um, our tagline is women's health is everyone's health. And for women, we're thinking about putting an X for the E, right? Um, mm -hmm. I've also seen some articles online that some there's some debate around putting the X in there, like whether or not that's really inclusive or not. What do you guys do? And what do you think? Yeah, and I think that's, it's such an interesting question and actually a conversation we've been having internally as well. So <laughs> yeah. whether it's women with an X, we've also seen women with a Y yes. uh, instead of the E, yep. um, or to say femme, instead of female or women. Yeah. Um, and where we arrived on uh, for our homepage is actually as much as possible to say individual yeah. um, to, uh -huh. in some ways to make it broader. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I think it's a really valid question that you have. And, and something that uh, I think particularly for investor conversation that mm -hmm. I'm still trying to find the right words because yeah it's much easier for investors to understand that we're a women's health company. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, rather than saying we are a reproductive sexual health company, uh, because when we say that, I think they could also think about other categories that we're never going to play in like erectile dysfunction. Yeah. Yeah. Or fertility. Like how do you do IVF or something? Right. Like, right. Yeah. No, I totally get it. Yeah. And investors are so tricky. And that's something that Femtech Focus is really, you know, excited to help founders with is how do you come up with your language to get investment? Because sometimes there is some compromise in your messaging because investors are not scientists. Usually investors, you know, they're looking for what's, what's going to make them the most money. That is their profession, right? Putting out money mm -hmm. to get more money back. And so sometimes how you word things has to, has to be different for them. What has been some of your bigger struggles in your company and your experience as a founder? Mm. Um, I would say a struggle I had earlier on, and I will say I've even noticed a shift during the short lifetime of 28, um, was actually talking to investors at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. I still remember uh, one of the investor meetings I had where I was in a room. This is a definitely not a rare story, but I was in a room with four men who are middle-aged, all white. Um, and I was telling them about reproductive and sexual health. And I was telling them about the challenges women face about getting birth control. Yeah. And one of them mentioned like, oh, well, you know, I have a high school daughter. She's not on birth control. Like, and if she didn't need it, she would talk to me about it. I would help her out. And <laughs> in my uh... mind, having been a teenage girl, I was thinking, I'm like, I, I think it would be really great if you had that type of dialogue with your <laughs> yeah, daughter. Yeah. One piece is um, I'm skeptical about exactly the reliability of his data. And the second piece that frustrated me is I'm presenting you with this information about over 200 women that I've spoken with, thousands of women we've interviewed, market research data. Mm -hmm. And yet the focal point for you is that one single data point of your daughter in yeah. high school. 
who, to be frank, is probably not our target demographic. If you're a daughter yes, of a- I was just going to say that. If you're a daughter of a general partner of a venture capitalist, you may not be underserved, <laughs> right? Yeah, like you're probably not on Medicaid. Yes. Oh my gosh, yeah. And the guy wasn't even like telling about how his experience of his daughter, he was like predicting, right? Whereas exactly. you had all this existing real life data. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah but- I will say that is something that have has shifted oh, even good. in the last year or so. Um, so I do think um, it's something that people are becoming more and more aware of. And yeah. I also think it's props to individuals like yourself that are really bring more conversation around femtech, removing stigma around it, because that's a really important component for mm-hmm. everyone to be mm-hmm. more aware of what's happening. Yeah, I have said vagina in more boardrooms than I think <laughs> is even appropriate, but it's purely to move the needle, you know, <laughs> like yeah. to move to move it to get the message across. Um, yeah, I remember uh, Scott Kapoor came to Austin, Texas. He works at um Andreessen Horowitz and he and I asked him some stuff and talked to him about I'm I'm passionate about periods and menopause and he was like okay and I'm like oh my god this is Scott Kapoor (laughs) he's like a really big author and like very famous and I'm like seriously uteruses are the future (laughs) how do I get money to fund it (laughs) um well, Amy, this has been so much fun. You are doing such important work and I, I'm just so grateful. I'm so grateful. Um, you know, I'm a woman who does have access, but there, there are so many, so many people who don't. And so thank you so much for what you do. And uh, definitely everyone should register to vote. Um, and so we can change all these policies and help all the women all over. Um, but we have two last questions that our listeners love. The first one is that we have a lot of aspiring founders listening to our show, and they're wondering what else still needs innovating in femtech. So what's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? That's a great question. And I I think as much as there is more proliferation of femtech companies, overall across the board, investments in women's health, whether it's R&D companies, are still so low. Mm-hmm. So there are a ton of opportunities out there and also a ton of tailwinds for femtech overall being um, in the health pandemic. I think people are also recognizing the challenges within our healthcare system and what exists today. Um, There's also a lot of potential for launching new businesses right now because from a tactical perspective, um, the customer cost of acquisition has typically gone down very significantly. Mm. So I think it's a really interesting time for people to test something out. And at the end of the day, I think it's really important to do something you're passionate about because you're going to live it day in and day out. And if you're really passionate about it, you really understand the area, you will find the opportunities there and the insight that no one else knows. Mm, I love that. I love it. And I I find that a lot of times the thing you're most passionate about is because you've personally experienced it, right? We have so many founders Mm -hmm. that come on the show that are like, yeah, I was struggling with this problem, realized there was no solution. So that's why I started this company, right? So um, listeners, if you are struggling with something, you could be the one to make the solution, you know? And even if it's not a big struggle, it's a minor inconvenience, women, we deserve, we deserve all the good things, right? We don't have to be told to just deal with any level of pain or discomfort or inconvenience. And like, there's solutions that you don't have to cure cancer, right? You can even have solutions that are 
um, you know, seem more minor, but are absolutely, you know, big business potential and could help women. Our last question is, um, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? I would love to encourage more women and men or people of any sexual orientation (laughs) or gender identification um, to be entrepreneurs in this space. I think there's so, so much that needs to be done. And on the flip side, also for more investors to be Mm -hmm. excited about the space and to get involved and really understand what femtech means. So hopefully no one else is having the same experience I did where you have to explain why someone's teenage daughter might not be comfortable talking to their dad about birth control. (laughs) Yes, I love it. More founders, more investors. Um, Amy, thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, And I, I, again, very grateful for the work you're doing. It's important. Thank you, Brittany. And one last thing I wanted to add is uh, during the health pandemic, what we're doing is actually waiving our doctor evaluation fees for birth control. And we would love to extend that to your users as well. So if they use the code FOCUS, um, they'll be able to waive that $20 fee. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Amy. Yes, listeners, getting the perks by being a subscriber. Um, that's awesome. Thank you so much, FOCUS, for to waive the fee. That's amazing. Thank you, Amy, so much. Thanks, Brittany. Thank you for listening to my interview with Amy Pham, co-founder and chief product officer of 28 Health. 28 Health is the only player that accepts Medicaid in New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Pennsylvania, and soon Florida. Medicaid has great coverage for reproductive and sexual services, and 28 Health is on a mission to provide high-quality health care that is accessible to women in need. Don't forget, listeners, you can use promo code FOCUS at 28health.com to get a free doctor valuation for birth control, which is a $20 value. Alrighty, Fem fans, if you love our content, then please consider donating to Femtech Focus, which is a nonprofit organization. Your contributions go directly to helping us elevate the Femtech industry. You can also support the show by sharing it with a friend, subscribing, and leaving a review. To stay up to date on Femtech news and events, subscribe to our newsletter and join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org. Until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.